Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 54. I'm your host, Dill, and this week we welcome music industry veteran Brandon Hinson to the show. Brandon has worn many hats in his 20 years in and around music. Starting out as a musician, he went on to found his own management company, worked as a production manager for Clear Channel Concerts, served as tour manager for Smash Mouth, and currently oversees clubs and theaters for Live Nation in Charlotte, North Carolina. I met up with Brandon at one of the clubs under his watch and our conversation about managing artists, tour logistics, and what it takes to break a band these days went a little something like this. experience that you learned as a touring musician yourself yeah so i think maybe a, a good place to start is maybe what's your, your intro to music as a child like what got you you know what what um so i, I kind of grew up like my father was a nightclub and a venue owner um huge music buff um he wasn't a musician um but i grew up always around venues live music uh whether that was like um, DJs or like old school funk bands like Gap Band and uh, I remember George Clinton at P-Funk playing at some of his clubs um, I remember Prince coming to some of his venues oh um, and uh, you know I caught the music bug early from that you know from that and um, wanted to play guitar it just wasn't in the cards um, so it was, I was a drummer became a drummer and uh, especially when I first uh, got into like Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard and then saw Motley Crue I was like yeah I'm definitely going to be a drummer and uh, started playing drums early, like I think when I was, I don't know, man, like nine years old or something. And then, um, do you get um, lessons through the school or private lessons? Or? Uh, no, not at the time, really. I just, uh, I just, uh, you know, self taught. And then I, t- I took lessons, lessons later in life, um, and then did some stuff when I was in high school and like in like band, but um, but was never in the marching band. But they had an instructor that would come in. And teach you basically snare drum rudiments and things like that. Right, right. Um, but I had already been playing drums for years at that point, and then actually learned a lot. Like that, oh, I've been completely doing this wrong, you know, certain things, <laughs> and uh, and having to relearn and recorrect myself and some of that. But then um, my brother, I had a brother that's a year younger than me, and uh, he played guitar and he sang and he wrote songs. So I said, okay, well, we've got half, you know, half of a band pretty much at this point. And then uh, just in high school, you know, we had friends. We, we did the, the typical high school duel around and, you know, formed the high school band and whatnot. And then um, and then got a little serious with it. At the same time, we were all still working in my father's clubs and uh, still around music. And um, uh, Now, are you seeing it at this point? Are you learning, you know, I think so many other people come at it from such a novice way when they're, you know, in high school bands and they make a, a serious go at it. Did uh, you... Do you feel like you had early lessons just seeing or, you know, oh, seeing absolutely. these guys in and out and, you know, kind yeah, of... kind of learning the process and how it goes and, like, you know, this is what you should do and, and, and you know, it's always around bands. So um, I had a little bit of a grasp on how, um, you know, what, what a good show is. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was very particular in his taste and what was uh, what he was going to book and, and whatnot. So I had, and still to this day, the live show is where it's at for me. Um, you know, there's there's great songs and there's bands that don't have great songs that put on amazing shows. That uh, and that's that's where my that's where my heart is is the live show. Um, so you know we were in bands and then um, kind of got serious with it and and started you know we were doing well and um, selling records when records were a thing to sell. Right. And um, uh, one of our bands called Bridge, we we started supporting bands like Puddle of Mud, Live, um, Fuel, um, play with the Foo Fighters. Um, started doing festivals when they used to do the Carolina Music Fest and Center City Live things like that they were used to be here in Charlotte um, we played those festivals Speed Street Festivals um, went from did shows from here to LA to New York and back and uh, we sold 20,000 records on our own that's when records were selling for $17 you know a piece right and uh, so we were making we were making good money and um, you know no publishing no licensing nothing like that at the time but uh, you, you know and we did it, and I did everything I ever wanted to do. And, and um, when I guess it was about 24, 25, you know, I kind of was like, you know, I have a, a strong interest in the in the business side of music. And uh, whether that's management, um, never cared much for booking. But I really thought, you know, this is uh, this is something that maybe I want to pursue a little more. And, and not so much the musician side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to get four people to uh, agree and be a family. And, right. and uh um, I was disinterested in that after one point. And if you're not going to sell a million records, um, 
which was the case at the time. There was no real, like in today's world, you can do it yourself. And at the time, you could not. Um, and if you didn't have label support and big money and big touring support, um, it was hard to make it. And I was not, my goal was not to be a struggling musician. It was to either make it or or, or, or not. And then move So on. How, long, how long into it were you guys, like at what point did you say, I'm going to make the switch, I'm going to step out from uh, the drums? And when I was like 25, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. But how long, how long were you at? at the trying to make it as a as oh I've been about in that in that particular band probably five years okay. five maybe six years and a couple of different member changes and whatnot. but we um, you know it, uh, it it was hard it was my baby you know yeah. I, did, I ran the business side of that band and uh, and then I knew that other people relied on me for that and they didn't necessarily want to want to stop um, but we were I was at a crossroads and I was like you know I've got to be I'm, I'm I'm not feeling this like I used to or like I want to. Um, I think it's time to, to switch it up and I, and I want to go take a different direction. I didn't even know exactly how I was going to do that, but I just knew that that's about what I felt like I needed to do. So what, what came next? Because I have, I think you had two concurrent things going on where you worked with Clear Channel Concerts and yes. also uh, United Management. Yes, yeah, so United Management was the management company that I started. That was actually the business of the band. Um, and one of my goals was, I was like, okay, well, maybe I can help and consult with and managing, you know, some other bands that, um, you know, that I've learned some, learned my mistakes along the way and learned what to do and what not to do and help some of these younger bands to, you know, not make those mistakes and steer them in the right direction. Um, working for Clear Channel Concerts was, I was, I had started out just as a runner over what is now PNC Music Pavilion. It was a blockbuster pavilion at the time. And, uh, I worked my way up to the production assistant and, um, Again, seeing all these tours and seeing all these things coming through, learning from that, and like you know, this is this is how this is how a big show and how a big tour is run. Um, this is how the day to day goes, and uh, so getting that like you know one on one that bird's eye perspective of like how this is how the touring industry should be. Uh, I loved it. I loved every second of it. And I actually actually my band got so busy at the time that I ended up leaving that job to pursue because I just didn't have the time in the summer. Summers when we were playing in doing road shows and that's right. when they needed me at the venue so I had to make the choice to leave that which I loved it um, uh, but I was it's time determined to make you know the band work and uh, uh, United Management was just a business piece of that band right um, so back to United Management so that was something you opened to manage your own band at mm-hmm. first and then you broaden it out to Drawing, yeah, drawing others. Yeah, we made it like a, you know, instead of having it was an LLC. It was uh, you know what we were doing. We were making money and um, needed to have a business front for the band as, as much uh, as many records as we were selling. I mean, it's, it doesn't sound like a lot in today's world. It actually is now. Um, but yeah, you um, said twenty. Was it twenty? Grand? It was like twenty twenty thousand records. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, that was just the business side of the band. I was like, maybe I can I can continue this with you know with other uh, with other business revenue, right? You also mentioned online sales when no one was doing it. Yeah, was that MP3s off of your own site? Yeah, or? we were we were basically we had a we had a large fan forum and a and a very active following, and a lot of people were spread out through the United States, and there was no there wasn't even Napster at the time. Um, we were selling uh, we were selling like MP3s, and I can't remember how we figured out how to do it. But I was like, okay, well they'll just send us money just email them and, and we'll email them the MP, you know it wasn't like a, a, yeah, yeah. a digital transaction or a streaming type thing but like you know okay we'll, we'll sell you the song for and it was cheaper than the record version because we didn't have any printer yeah, no, costing into it no shit so yeah we were doing that um, before people really even uh, were doing that so at least we didn't think they were mm-hmm. so. what about um, you also mentioned managed video shoots creative concepts was that was that for yourself at the time, or did that broaden out to be? Yeah, that was yeah, for us, for the stuff we were doing for the band. Um, we, you know, creative concept and then um, direction and then planning, um, logistics and, you know, bringing in a production team to, to shoot and film the, the project. How much do you think you were spending at that time for a video for yourself? Oh, geez, man. Um, probably uh, 1500 to 3500 bucks, depending on, you know, what how much we were doing and what was involved and if we had other people in it, you know, and whatnot, but yeah, somewhere in that right. range. Do you have an idea back in the day, I mean, this is, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s, when videos were still relevant, like, mm-hmm. and, you know, top, top artists could spend anywhere between that and, like, Van Halen was famous for spending, like, 5000 or 7500 on Jump. Yeah. They could spend that all the way to 
six figures. Oh yeah, I and mean, that's you know that's true. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about you know in the context of United Management, um, you know just some of the just kind of top line of you know you mentioned you, you did sales, marketing, budgeting, promotion, booking. Mm-hmm. That's just all you know all stuff you learned from being around the business or Absolutely. trial and error. Oh yeah, well trial and error for sure. But um, but all stuff that I that I learned, and then um, I would take a risk on on things like you know I don't I don't know if this is going to work, but we're going to go for it and see if it, see if it you know throw it on the wall if it sticks and it sticks if it doesn't it doesn't we'll, we'll know that we don't do it again mm-hmm. um, or that we'll do it better next time. Um, but I had a few friends that were you know that that were musically inclined and they wanted to know more and they were and they had a good knack for business that that I kind of brought into the company to be kind of our team, so to speak, uh, with the band and then even without the band after it was done, um, that were, they were good market, had good marketing brains. And, uh, we'd all sit down at our table and come up with concepts and ideas and, um, uh, to, to try for, for the band. And, um, some people were road crew help and some people were booking help. Um, and then some were creative idea, like help with whether it's, it was for flyering or, you know, um, graphics or, right pushing them out and that was the days before there was no social media so we were going out and handing out 6,000 you know, flyers to our to the shows right does any one thing come to mind in that sense of like what that would turn out to be a great idea at the time or you know work for you gangbusters <laughs> uh, you know I'll be honest with you like I, even to this day in, in me working with young bands today and uh, and with all these social tools and all these like uh, these social outlets the best, the most effective tool still boils, boils down to the one-on-one interaction, you speaking with a, a fan or a potential fan or someone or handing over a flyer or a ticket or, or that one-on-one conversation is still the most effective tool, um, even with all of the, the uh, media outlets and social outlets right, right. that are at disposal today. Yeah, I, I can see that. And when you were doing it, when you were, I assume you're in a band, Oh yeah. Were you guys totally DIY? Did you have totally. any management or any? I mean, I, I was I was the, the manager for it. Yeah, but uh, no, yeah, totally DIY. And would you, you know, hit a town and hit the streets and mm-hmm. you know paste up flyers, hand out flyers? And all oh that yeah, stuff? hit the streets, hand out flyers, and then um, uh, and would even you know, get phone numbers and you know people had email addresses, but there wasn't a, a huge way of communication tool, but. Um, uh, get phone numbers and let people know, hey, we're, when we're, we're coming back, we're going to be here X day. You know, if you're going to be in town, come to the show and build that following through that right. uh, that one-on-one interaction. Actually, that reminds me, yeah, the mailing list. There'd always be that clipboard, mm-hmm. you know, by the speaker. And oh, yeah. Up, so. Thankfully, we would we would get people involved in our website. Our website had, had a fan forum section that was really just like a posting section. And um, and it was much like what a Facebook wall is today. And uh and get them involved in that. And we were very active in letting people know show, show here, show there, this date, you know, coming up, announcement coming tomorrow. And, uh, and that was, that was the first real, I guess, online communication that, uh, that we used, um, that was available. Uh, and it worked for us. That's interesting. How about you mentioned like opening for fuel live food fighters? How did those opportunities um, so I had bugged, uh, I had bugged the house of blues for, I had some kind of some music mentors that were in this area that were, um, either involved in record labels, most of them in beach music, but had great relationships with, uh, with venues and, and house of blues venues specifically. Um, through him and myself, I bugged the guy that was in charge at the time of, of booking all the Southeast venues, you know, please put my band in, please put my band in, we'll open for anybody, we'll do it for free, whatever, you know, I'll, I'll pay you to do it. I don't care. And, uh, and finally I got a, I got a random phone call from him one day and, uh, and he still works for the company today and I actually have, we, we get to interact, but, um, uh, he said, Hey, I've got a one-off date with live coming through the Myrtle Beach house of blues. Um, it's a warm-up for them before they go do their Australian tour. Um, can you do it? And, and without even checking with anybody, I was like, Oh, absolutely. We can do it. So, um, they agreed until they, I think like 150 bucks or something. And, uh, uh, we went down and he said, now listen, I'm going to get a report on this. So you, so you better not, you better not screw this up, <laughs> which was kind of intimidating me. I was like, Oh God, we, we sure better not screw this up. So, um, so we did, we went down and, uh, it was sold out show and, um, we turned it out and we had a blast. And at the end of the night, the, I think that the, um, the talent buyer, whoever I was settling the show with ended up paying us, they ended up giving us money back for our hotel rooms and, uh, and paid us. 
like 250 bucks more than what we agreed upon just because she's like, you know what, that was... She loved, she loved it. That's nice. And then uh, I was like, well, please, please send a good report back to her. She's like, oh, I've already gotten a phone call. I was like, okay, all right. So I was like, was it good? And she's like, it was positive. So um, I literally, I think the next week I got a phone call from them, and they kept us on about a 90-day rotation if they had something available uh, with our genre of anything that came through that they could throw uh, support on, whether they had other support or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that presented, that gave us saliva and fuel and uh, oleander and um, Breaking Benjamin when they were nothing they were brand new and like I think that was the one show we played with the least amount of people and uh, um, and Puddle the Mud that was that was a great one that was a huge one for us that was like they were were at the top of their game at the time and uh, it was just us and them and we had to actually end up playing stage manager walks up uh, right before we're about to go on I think we had like a a 30 minute set slotted and uh, he's like hey listen my guy's missed his flight. Um, hopefully he's going to make the second one. But I need you to buy me some time. I'm like, okay, well, how much time? He's like, can you play an extra at least 15 minutes? I was like, sure. And I was like, you know, he's like, I'll signal you from the stage if it's if we're good and you can come off. I was like, well, just give me a 15-minute window because we have about 15 minutes of a certain way we want to close the show out. No problem. So we ended up doing the 45 minutes. Literally walked off stage and here comes this guy through the back door at the same time. Like, we're... Where's the dressing room? Where do I go? We're like, follow us. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that's, you know, and those, and from that and just uh, kind of building our value, um, I had a, just a, a third party relationship with the, the guys that were booking the uh, festivals here. And um, um, they put us on Speed Street, uh, they put us on um, Center City Fest, right, Carolina right. Music Fest, um, and it just kept, it just kept building from there. Do you um, have any relationships? Well, it's a strong word, but did you get to meet these bands at the time and hang out with them? Because it's some oh, yeah. bands you mentioned I know are actually, I think Breaking Benjamins are scheduled to come back to oh, the yeah, summer. Oh, yeah. I've worked, what's, <laughs> what's funny is I've worked uh, here, um, well, the PNC, I did one of their shows when they came through with Corn. I think it was like the last show of one of our seasons. And then when I, when I uh, uh, we've had them here twice once or twice or we've had them once and they're coming back again or something like that but um, I don't have they would never remember me from that that was back in like yeah, 2001 yeah. or something right but uh, uh, but it's cool to see that there's the, the you know out of all those bands all the people we play with I, I just saw that we have another one that we used to play with that's coming back in August I don't even think it's announced yet but <laughs> that'll be interesting to see um, so let's I guess one last question which Clear Channel Concert, just I, I have these mm-hmm. notes about, you know, you were responsible for pre-show prep and you're the liaison behind, between the venue and the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was Coliseums, arenas, and clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have end-of-show end of accounting. Is there anything surprising that you learned once you got in it? Like, did, did you find that people made more or less than you ever thought? Or Well, most most of my accounting with, with that job was, um, was like house cash and house flow. Okay. And because uh, I was responsible for the for the other runners at the time too, so making sure they had you know what I gave them came back matched the receipt. So that that portion of the counting that I was doing uh, that I was doing at the time was really in regards to okay. that. Okay. Um, what I do now is obviously a lot more in depth and involved uh, for with artist and show aspect. But uh, but at the time it was really just managing. I had uh, part of my gig was man- making sure if they had they wanted four or five runners I brought those people scheduled those people had them in the system and managed them all day uh, based on what the tour manager was telling them to go do and um, so that was and, and it was my responsibility to settle the house float cash with him at the end of the night um, that's how we used to do it it's actually done a little bit different uh, nowadays but uh, that was part of my accounting responsibilities then. okay okay so um uh, I'll mention this, but there's there's like a one year you did it. Seems like you might have taken a a, a pivot, but there's the Johnny Fly Clothing Company. Was yeah, that, I kind of got that a side gig. It was it was a side gig, and, and there was a, there was a certain point after the band was done, and, and and I was working in music, and it wasn't really going quite like I wanted to. And it was at the time where the industry was in that when it was in that huge change, like you know CDs and record stores right, were starting to go away, and and Napster had presented itself, and there was no solution to to how that was going to happen and it was all very confusing you know it was um i mean it was changing every day and i you know, i was even watching that uh that show uh, the defiant ones with you know right. the story of jimmy Iovine and uh dr dre and he's telling his story of when all this was going down he was seeing it coming and how it was going to change everything and he 
he was just, everyone just kind of threw their hands up there like, this is, I don't even know how to handle this. Like what's going on, what's happening? So I became very frustrated and, um, um, I lived in Mooresville, so I was friends with, with some race car drivers and, um, um, I was a, a fan of, of the sport, but never had any interest in working in it whatsoever. Um, and, uh, just linked one company with one team that uh, was looking for sponsors, and it was an easy deal. And it was before the market crashed, so mm-hmm. um, people had a bunch of money to spend. And uh, I did one, and they're like, well, "Hey, why don't you do another one?" That was pretty easy. I was like, "Well, I mean, I, could, I mean, I made some money on that. Sure, I can do that." And I did another one, and got kind of involved in the sport for a little bit. Really did not enjoy it as, as, as anywhere near like I did uh, uh, music. music, but I was making money, so. Um, and then when the market crashed, it became increasingly difficult to, to do that same kind of work and uh, insanely stressful. And I didn't already enjoy it anyway. So at that point, I was like, you know, I, I'm going to I'm going to step away from this. And, I, and one of my one of my good friends was Steve Harwell from Smash Mouth, Lisa here for Smash Mouth. He was at my house and we were both uh, racing buffs and liked, you know, he was into it himself. And we were hanging out on the lake on Memorial Day. And he's like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, yeah, I want to get back into music, man. I'm kind of done with the whole racing thing. I was like, but uh, I don't know what I want to do. I was like, I know I don't want to be a musician. Um, but I think the music is coming back to a point where there's some, there's at least some uh, stability. And right. even, though, even though it's still ever-changing, but there's like, it's not a what's going to happen now. Oh, it's all over and doom and gloom kind of atmosphere. Um, but I do want to get back into it and, and wrap my head back around it because I've been out of it for so long now. I don't, I don't know what the fuck is going on. So, um, so he's like, well, while you're figuring that out, uh, why don't you, uh, my tour manager's out for the rest of summer with another gig. Why don't you come do that for, you know, for a couple of months and to you figure out what you want to do and maybe it'll present some opportunities to you and go from there. And that three months turned into three years. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, I think we were traveling, I think I was averaging like 200 to 250 days a year wow. uh, doing weekender gigs and then summer, t- summer package tours. So, so there was, you know, the June to June to August and then, uh, pretty much fly dates every other weekend, uh, or every weekend outside of that. So leaving on a Thursday or Friday, coming back on a Sunday or Monday, depending on where or what the show was, lots of international gigs. Um, so I traveled quite, quite extensively with that and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. It was, it was a blast. Um, I really didn't look to get into any other things because I was so busy with that. I enjoyed it. Um, I felt like I had a knack for it. I'd been around all that stuff and learned from all that right. in, in my past. I was like, you know, this is, I, I'm comfortable. Like, and I feel like I got a knack for this. And um, it's actually how I met, how I met Jason. And, um, you know, it's, uh, I enjoyed it. Like, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, you know, I knew that my wife and I were also thinking about kids at the time. Right. And, uh, and she was okay at the travel piece. She knew what I did. She knew what she what she married so there was no surprise in any of that um but when we knew that when the kids came around that there wasn't going to be any more bus living or travel or airport living um uh 200 250 days out of the year so uh so that happened and when that happened i came off the road and um um, went back to work for live nation which really the same folks i was working for at clear channel concerts over the pavilion um straight up told me listen you're gonna have to Start at the bottom. We can't just throw you in the mix. You've been gone for for a, for a while, um, and then work your way up. You know, we'll we'll fast pace you, but we can't just push you in right. where you where you where you should be. So, um, um, and it was the same person I, I worked with back in like the you know, late nineties, early two thousands. And um, I was like, you know, I I really loved the company. I you know, obviously I worked with Live Nation as a tour manager with some of the shows that I was doing with Smash Mouth. And uh, I was like, you know, maybe this is a good home for me. Uh, you know, for long term, if I can, you know, this is a, a long term deal, and uh, uh, started working as a runner back to where I was in the, in the late nineties, and then uh, then became the assistant production manager, and then started uh, they started sending me to go do satellite shows like uh, like ovens and mm-hmm. um, one of our amphitheaters in Greensboro, then one of the ones in uh, the small ones at Red Hat in Raleigh, um, running those shows while other PNC shows were going, and my my boss would run those himself, so. Um, Loved it. Loved all of that. And then um, came a time during one of the off-seasons that uh, they, hey, can you go to our clubs and theaters venue? They need some help over there. Um, you know, straighten some things out. And got a second venue that just opened up. They're a smaller cap room. Why don't you do that in the off-season? We'll come back in the spring because I was just a seasonal guy at the time. Mm-hmm. And came over to clubs and theaters and loved it. Like, loved it. And saw a great opportunity to, um, 
to be able to to grow within a company on that on that in that division. Um, and that's where I, that's where we're sitting right that's now. That's where we're sitting right now. So. <laughs> All right. Well, let's back up then. <laughs> sure. I just that was a, that was that a quick spiel on how or path anyway how that came about. Um, how did you meet Steve in the first place of Smash Mouth? We actually so when I was in a band, um, he had a deal with. Uh, he was playing some shows with Budweiser, and he was uh, he's a racing buff, so he's a big Dale Earnhardt Jr. fan. Dale Jr. was was a friend of ours, and uh, and was and was you know into our band and uh, came to a lot of shows and and helped push us through you know through his channel when he was you know the star you know in the sport, sport it was the rising star like when it was the sport was on the top of the game you know and um so that between that link um dale got us hooked up with opening for smash mouth at a uh during one of the race weekends but it was at a uh old tremont music hall but it was a budweiser event so that's how we that's how we ended up meeting and uh we just always we just hit it off and um we became good friends we always stayed in touch and um, would call and go through, and then uh, I think we opened a couple more, couple more shows for him in different places, and then uh, he would bring us out and, and hooked us up. We were doing a record, and he hooked us up with his uh, tour manager, who was also a studio engineer. And he's like, "Hey, listen, we're not on tour. My, my guy's really good. Why don't you have him do your record?" And uh, he lives in he lives in Seattle, so we went to Seattle to do one of our records uh, in like 2000, 2001, something like that, and. Um, Spent some spent some weeks out there and did that with him. So I've just always had that relationship with him, even outside of music and racing. We just became good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how that that connection came. And as you mentioned, you know, being a tour manager, kind of everything fell into place that you've been doing yeah. all along. Was there anything new for you, or anything you know? Um, I mean, I had to learn. Um, uh, some of the travel pieces. I mean, you're traveling with nine guys, especially on fly dates with lots of gear. Um, some of the contracting pieces that I hadn't dealt with that side of before. Um, you know, it took me just a really lot of trial and error, and, and their management was great. So I would, I mean, I would ask a ton, a ton of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, you know, call it, hey, I, I don't want to mess this up. This is not, you know, this is not something I'm comfortable with taking a risk and stab at. How do I handle this? What do I do here? Um, and he was great about giving me info and kind of um, guiding, guiding me through that process of something I didn't know. Um, I became, you know, there was a point where I think I was saving them like a hundred and hundred fifty thousand a year in flights oh my because I I learned that at Wednesday miles. nights between <laughs> midnight and one a.m. usually about one a.m. the the airlines reset their ticket their ticket prices. Oh my gosh! So when I was booking flights, I would wait. I would I would look at how many seats were open on the plane. And I could, I could judge. Okay, they're, they're either going to go up or they're going to go down. So I wouldn't even do my own searches because the searches would queue up as a seat in queue to be taken. And it would start raising the prices on the flights. And when I'm booking that many that many seats, I would constantly sit there and like refresh, refresh, watch them, go back, look how many seats are taken now. And I'm like, okay, this ticket price is going to go down. So I'm going to wait till 1 a.m. to a reset and then I'm going to buy my tickets. <laughs> so literally, I'll do that. Every, that was my Wednesday night thing. I'd sit there and just watch airline. And I had them all, all up on the screen. I'm going to refresh all of them. The best one they gave me, the, the best deal. I'd buy it at 1 a.m. when uh, when it would go on. So, that's so funny. Yeah. I mean, from my, from my perspective, the experience I've had with the tour managers, that's like one of the hardest jobs <laughs> it's, on, it's on earth. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you're the first one awake and the last one asleep. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, uh, I was going to say a day in the life, but that would probably take uh, an hour. But what's uh, what's the most taxing part of that, that uh, gig? Wrangling the artist, <laughs> I, you know, and some artists are really. I mean, it depends on the band too. Like, you know, some are really easy. My, my guys, we were all like a big family. There were times that they were, uh, that the, the, they were difficult, and you know, I think that goes with any band at any point in time. Sometimes you're with them, so you're part of the part of the, diff, the difficult you know piece. But um, when you're in your hotel room, you're getting phone calls at four o'clock in the morning to. Um, go wrangle something it's you know that's and you've got to be up in a couple hours that's not the fun part <laughs> or go close a tab because you know someone's card has been declined because they've used it so many times um do you have a go-to story of the any of these experiences that you you tend to tell um oh jeez, man um <laughs> there, there's so many that uh wait for the book yeah, you, you know, I actually, it's funny. I started a Tumblr blog, and I, I never finished it. It kind of is a Tales of a Tour Manager. Um, I used to do this when I was on the airplane flying somewhere. I would input, you know, and most of it was airport experiences. Like, you know, I spent a lot of time in airports. Yeah. But um, 
Um, you know, I, I can't think of one that was just just a sand dog. We, there, was, there was quite a few. I remember flying back from uh, flying back from the Philippines one time. We went through Seoul, South Korea, and I had already estimated like what it was going to cost for the luggage and all of our pieces and whatnot. Apparently, the airline that we jumped on and sold to come back to the United States was uh, did there was a little bit differently. I can't. I think it was Asiatic Airlines. I can't remember who it was. But it was pretty much going to cost $6,000 because we had to uncheck and recheck our luggage. It wasn't like a straight-through type, right, right. type deal. And I was like, $6,000? I was like, surely she's she's telling me this and whatever their currency is over there. No, 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 no. It's U.S. dollars. I'm like, lady, hold on. I already paid for, for the gear to be shipped. And uh, so we were in a little bit of a pickle there to, to figure that out because I didn't have $6,000 on the card or myself or, or you know, collectively among anybody to figure out how to get our gear on this plane and they were not releasing it until we paid so uh, there was a couple of those issues going into Canada was always terrible like What's terrible that? Uh, because you're you're a band so they automatically assume like you know Canada's one of the you're, hardest you're hardest places that we've ever had to like go through in customs um, we've had we had a guy denied for a DUI that was 20, 20 years prior you know just silly stuff you know we did two tours in Australia and if there was any other place I could ever live somewhere that that would be, yeah, like especially good. like Northern Territory area, nice and peaceful, great people. Do you guys purposely build in like three or four days just to acclimate to being completely turned around? Going that far, yeah. We would, I mean, we would have pretty much two days of like reset before we were, you know, doing our jobs. Um, going that far over, uh, I think we did we did a Jack Daniels gig in Romania, like a birthday party thing they were doing in Romania. In this old building, they've been sitting there for 50 years untouched. They pretty much renovated for one one show. And uh, there wasn't any rest. I think we went in one night, got in at night, had a little setup the next day. The show was the next day. We flew out the next day. And I always flew with the band. So coming back from Romania, we went up through Canada. And they, they were housed in San Jose. So we'd either land in San Jose or San Francisco. So I would fly with the guys. And then usually have to sleep in an airport for about six hours in one of the the sky lounges or whatever, okay. and then fly myself home. So my time was always a couple of days, and I like to get in before everybody else, make sure they're good in the airport, make sure they had their their vehicles or transportation, they didn't have any issues or flight delays because I didn't want to be on a plane if they had a flight delay because I can't fix it. Um, so I like to be on the ground so I can get them rearranged and get them where they're supposed to be. Um, I think there was one show one time we had a uh, the nearest airport was three and a half hours from where we were playing. One of my guys either he either missed his flight or the flight got canceled. So we get to the next one. We're not sure if he's going to even be able to make the show. Like, it was scrambling. I turned the vehicle right around, sent him back two hours to grab him. You know, it was, there was a couple of those scenarios. It's just a lot of logistics. Yeah, yeah. Which I totally. enjoy logistics, so. <laughs> um, what about riders? Oh, jeez, man. <laughs> now, as an artist writer... I guess there's probably stuff you, you read it and think, okay, they really need this. <laughs> they really don't need this. Right. I mean, is it all up for interpretation? Or I mean, there's some. Um, our rider was never really difficult. It was pretty much the food items and things like that. Now, the ones that I see today, I mean, I'll never name any artists, but I mean, there's ones they try and, you know, and I guess they have one common rider that's good. They're going to send out to every show, regardless of what state they're in. <clears throat> so I've seen some come across when they're asking for ounce of your finest marijuana uh, <clears throat> you know um, that might not be a problem in a couple of months yeah it might not be a problem in a couple of months a couple of months we might be able to do that um, you know or, uh, or or some crazy requests for liquors that just aren't available in our state right. and this is a must have if you, if you get anything on this ride this is the one thing you gotta have like, dude they don't even sell that in the state like it's not possible um, but, uh, but I'm seeing more and more of the, the, the marijuana requests, which I think is hilarious. I'm like, that's, that's not going to happen. Today, funny. But, Do you ever run into a problem where you don't, where you yeah. haven't furnished something? Uh, no, I mean, there's things that we that will refuse to purchase. Like, um, I think there's been some some off the wall things. Uh, there's always like large amounts of condoms on some riders, or uh, you know. You don't really see the you know the bowl of nails of the green was taken right, out, right, right. but you do see funny things in there that are to be or really just so that you'll pay, they know that you've paid attention to the rider. Like it'd be something some wild request, and I'll have a run or somebody come to me like, "Hey, um, are we getting this?" I'm like, "No, no, no, that's to make sure you're paying attention." I promise you. You know, they'll have something like, uh, 
uh, four black V-neck shirts all turned out, turned inside out with tag, tags removed or something right, like yeah, that. Yeah. And they're like, do I have to do that? I'm like, no, that's to make sure you're paying attention that's to funny. Them, so. <laughs> I guess that's the tale of the Van Halen writer. That they, were, I guess they originally did the brown M&M. Yeah. But the guy who just wrote the book said, yeah, it was just to see if people were paying attention. Mm-hmm. Funny. Absolutely. So what is 77 Artist Management and Development? So that's... Um, um, I started that... So I've been managing... When I was on the road... Uh, I got a phone call from from a friend of mine. He's like, "Hey, you know, I know you're not home a lot. There is a uh, one of my friends. His son's in a band. They're young. They're local. Um, can you, when you're home, sometime, can you come to a show that, and just give them some pointers? Yeah, sure, I can do that. They're like, and I mean, young, like ages 14 to 17 or 18, something like that. Um, I was like, you know, well, next time I'm home, if they have a show, he's like, well, actually, he's like, here's their next show. I was like. I'm actually home that day. I'll come out to the show. I think it was here actually. They had, they had they were opening for for uh, some forty one or something like that. They had they had either won a contest or something to get to be a to be an opener, um, and they were not very good. <laughs> but, uh, but, but they're was, young. They're multiple. They're very young. And then I went to another show and they were a little bit better. And um, but one of the bands that played with them on that bill was really good, and uh, had a, a great lead singer and. Um, um, so I was kind of watching both bands just from afar. You know, I, I didn't really want to manage. I didn't have the time to do it. Um, when I came off the road, I was like, you know what? I'll, as I'm going back to work, I've got time to do this stuff. I'll, I'll kind of get back into the management thing. And, you know, I'd always been involved in the, in the local music scene here in Charlotte. And uh, there were some great things happening. And uh, especially with the resources and tools that, that bands have available to them today compared to what I had available when I was in a band um, with as far as, like, the, the, the quality of production they can do for records and um, the the money they can do it for. Like, I was spending crazy money in studios at the time, and, and now you don't have to. Right. Um, so uh, so I was like, you know, I'm going to dabble back in this. I'm just going to look and see what's out there, aside from, the, from the, the two I'm watching. So I came home and went to one of the shows. I noticed that the lead singer for the band that I was watching is now the lead singer for the band that I was asked to watch, and so was one of the other members, and it had been jumbled up a little bit. I was like, okay. This, this could be kind of cool. And um, um, I just started working for about three or four months. I just watched them. Just you know, went to the shows, watched them, kind of watched what they did on social media, watched how they interacted with their, with their fans, and um, just kind of did some due diligence before really kind of jumping in. I was like, okay. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if these guys are looking for someone. And if they are, you know, I'll, I'll go for it. I'll give it all I got. And uh, that's been – I've been working with them for five years now. And they're, they're – one of the premier live acts here. They play here. They put 500 people in the underground. Um, their social, their following is massive. They just had a dual EP release. I work a lot with their their records now. Um, do a lot of A and R with some of their with some of their projects, videos. Um, the one their their kind of band leader is uh, Kelly Floss. She's she's something. She's 22 or 23. She's kind of uh, got a great head of the business. Mm-hmm. You know, I work real well with her. There's some things that that. I obviously, with my job here, I can't, I can't put 100% focus into that. So she's been great about, you know, I just kind of coach them, coach them, and then we have our group chats and interactions and weekly kind of uh, uh, mashups or chats, so to speak. And uh, uh, they're fantastic, man. I mean, they're they've got it going on. We did some licensing deal. Got one of their songs is uh, was licensed for um, uh, Dragon Ball Super uh, anime uh, TV show. Okay. Through Crunchy Crunchyroll, which was huge for them, I think it's up to like four million views now. Um, and then they that led to a few other TV show license projects, and then uh, a couple of wrestlers were using one of their songs for walk-in music. And then um, we licensed one for uh, it was uh, Sony Sony PlayStation's um, promo for I think it's Armored Warfare, Armored Warfare Global Ops or something like that. Um, that was big for them. And then just most of re- recently, in the last couple of months, they. Uh, we didn't even know it. Somebody woke up, one of their fans one morning, was watching uh, the commercial for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, the, or the Rise of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Nicktoons. Right. And it's the song for it, because the song is called Rise. Okay. And uh, they're like, I was we're like, no way. So we, we ended up waiting around so someone could catch a clip of it. And then sure enough, yeah, I was licensed for that too. So now it's on the commercial every Saturday. It's for the Saturday morning uh viewing of Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Are you helping them chase down those opportunities? Oh, yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah, we go after it. And is this something clever? Who's it's something clever, okay. yeah. All right. Yeah. Gotta look, look them up. And oh, yeah, man. They're killing it right now. So, you know, they get they get mailbox money and royalties. And, uh, uh, you know, it's 
it's a lot it's a lot easier for a band these days to uh to DIY and, and uh, uh, that's kind of what the path they're taking until you know and that's what every band really should do to uh, kind of gain that attention that's the buzz that everyone talks about you got to create your own scene and make it happen and that's when people will take notice um, or the scouts like they're like they're used to be today no there's not but um, is it still the like what, what brings them to the next level is it still they need to be a um, so I think or? for them next is uh, like I have them I started a label with a partner but the producer for their records um, I've been wanting to do that for for a long time at a very small low scale level and uh, with with the real intent and goal being you know with the band or bands that are on the label to develop them it's more of a development label and um, and uh, uh, which I'd already kind of been doing with, you know with them but it's a development label to boost them up put them out there, raise that, that bar even even more so, and then work with another, you know, major indie or smaller indie um, as a licensing project, you know, sharing and, and pushing that band to what they can take it up to, take right, it to the next right. level. So that's kind of what the goal of, with uh, Bunker Hill Records. Okay. So that's what the goal of that is for. Um, and they're kind of our primary focus right now because they're, they're killing it. Now you talk about back when you were doing it, you know, the tools you had, and now today the tools... You know these kids have what's I guess I, I'm, I'm stumbling with the question I was thinking but I feel like what's the what's the biggest hurdle today for these bands? um biggest hurdle today I mean geez it's probably um you know you know bands have to get out and tour I mean they have to get out and um uh, you know get out of their scene and uh and that's difficult that's difficult when um you know they can go make a quality record uh in their town they can go uh you know there's lots of tools whether it's um uh, seminars, online projects, groups, you know, music groups where, where people that are teaching, that are in bands, you know, that have mm-hmm. made it, and, uh, whether they're teaching kids, uh, whether it's for, whether it's a, a subscription type based or even just free information uh, where bands can go and, and learn uh, from other people. Um, but the actual uh, doing it is the, is the, is the part like going out and touring and just jumping in a band and going, I mean, that's, it's difficult to book, to book places like that and, and be able to sustain yourself while you're out there. Right, right. Um, I think that's the, I think that's probably the hardest part. I even struggle with that with, with, with these guys. Um, you know, there's bands out there that are out there willing to go do that and just road dog it and, you know, have no job and, and survive on the road like that. And, and that's tough. I mean, and it really is sur- surviving. I mean, I see even some of the bands that come through here that are the first of four, um, and, and what they get paid and how they're making it and they're really you know they're not sure how they're going to get from right. you know, the from week. A to B to C um, but they make it happen and uh, and I've seen bands come through that were the first of four then they came back and they were direct support for somebody else and came back again and now they're the headliner um, and so it's doable it's out there um, and I think that the team is important and I think booking you know it's not so much when a band comes to me and says like, oh man if we just had a record deal if we just had a big record deal well, first of all, there is no big record deals anymore unless it's in the pop world or, or in the hip-hop world. Um, but for the rock world, there's not that huge, huge record deal. Like, there's a deal, but that isn't, it's not going to put you millions in your pocket. It might get you on the road. Yeah. Um, it might pay for your record if it's not already done. Um, but it's not going to pad you well enough that you're just going to go out and, and tour. It's finding an agent. Uh, that, that's the hardest, hardest piece. Or one that's, that's got the bandwidth to be able to, uh, to, to help boosting you know, a young artist um, like we have we have a plan for them and we have we you know a radio campaign and um, uh, and what we what we want to do but all those pieces have to work together at the same time for it to be effective like I don't, don't want to just put them out the road with no support right. I also don't want to just go hit a radio campaign and not have them be able to go out and support that campaign so um, you know it's kind of like it's kind of how do you, you know, where do you, where do you line this all up? Do we do the campaign first, gain that attention? Cause I just watched the band for a year do that and it worked for them. They didn't even do any shows. They just focused on radio, radio, get that buzz, raise that awareness. And finally people were like, well, when are they, when are they going to go on the road? Well, they don't have an agent. Oh, well, I want to, I want to be their agent. So, um, and I think that's, you know, you have to create it's, you, the buzz you're creating now is not to gain a record deal. It's to be able to go get an agent. Right. Um, now, when you say radio campaign, it's just buying a 30-second spot? No, I mean, like, actually, like, taking a song to radio. Um, okay. You can go to, you know, there's radio promotion companies that um, you can go to and do, like, uh, like our plan was, is a, a secondary market active rock radio on a national scale um, for a, a 4 or 14-week run. So, 
it takes money. I mean, you have to, to raise money for that. And you better better have PR behind it. You better have someone that's going to work it in tandem with the, the radio promotions company to to take advantage of all the opportunities that are um, they're, they're there. I mean, you're, you don't want to just send them on the radio. Like, oh, let's just see how it does. Right, right, you know, right. To back it up. Back it up and follow it up. So it's, it's just making sure that all those pieces are aligned and happening at the time that, uh, that they should, you know, for the most effective uh, outcome. All right. So we wind down every show with uh, the final five, the same five questions everybody gets. Okay. Uh, question number one is, uh, your house is on fire, your loved ones and living creatures are safe. What do you run back in and get that's music related, whether it's a memento or an instrument or just something near and dear to your heart? That's music related? Yeah. Um, I have a frame of, uh, so the Metallica drum kit from the, from the black album tour, the white one and black, or the yeah. white and black trim for rack tops. So um, there was 10 replicas of that kit made, and I've got one of them. And the original head that was on it, and a picture of me and Lars Ulrich is framed in a big box, like shadow box thing. Whatever. I'm going back in and getting that. Cool. And I've got a Michael Jackson jacket I used to wear when I was eight, year old, eight years old <laughs> and dance on, on stage in one of my dad's clubs. It's framed up in there. That's coming out. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I love that because late, lately it's been my guitar, my guitar. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go back and get your guitar. Uh, number two is if I was at liberty to give you a check for a million dollars to then give to one charity, which one charity would you donate? St. Jude's. What is it called? St. Jude's. Okay, St. Jude's. Yes. The Children's, the children's Hospital. Uh, hospital. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Question three is what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? <laughs> uh, well, to the Pearly Gates, I don't know if this would be acceptable. But I tell my wife this all the time in my walk-in music when I come home is that you ain't never met a motherfucker quite like me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. I don't know if that would be successful to Pearly Gates. <laughs> well, on the flip side of that, what's stuck on repeat in hell? What's stuck on repeat in hell? Oof. Um, it's always a Die Antwoord. <laughs> which one is it? <laughs> There's a, an artist called Die Antwoord that it's really catchy, but it will burn your ears after a while. <laughs> After an eternity, yeah. especially. <laughs> um, last question. I love asking you know people that are around music this question, but it's uh, favorite live performance you've witnessed as a fan. Oh man, uh, ooh, that's a hard one. I even, even counting like through all the shows I've done, I think I've seen over like three thousand shows. What was your first show? Uh, first show, first show ever was Michael Jackson's. Was it Michael Jackson? Michael okay. Jackson. And, uh, it was a stadium. I was a young kid. I want to say it was either in Nashville or Columbia. Okay. My parents took me to it. Amazing. 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 I remember he, the one memory I have from it was his his slipper came off his shoe in one of his dance moves, and he like slyly like turned it into where he slipped his shoe back on, and then continued you know <laughs> continued the show. I'll never forget that. Was this Thriller? Bad? Yeah, it was Thriller. Okay. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I remember. That was my first show. And then uh, I think Kiss was my second one. Death Leopard was my first one when I was where, where it wasn't just my parents taking me to see a show. It was like, I want to go see right, that show. Right, right. And it was like, it was hysteria uh, in the round at the old Charlotte Coliseum. Never forget it. That was a good show. I saw that in Rochester. Yeah, I, was, I will never forget that show. <laughs> Loudest thing I could ever remember like as a kid like that. I was like, gosh, this is so loud. But yeah, it was cool. That that your answer? No, I think the one that okay. stands out, man. You know, God, man, I've been. I was at Woodstock '99. I love festivals. Was that a stuff. good show? It was. It was wild. It's funny with that, with that coming back. So many people are like, "Oh my God!" It was such a. It was such a traumatic experience. It was a very traumatic experience. And I went up on a Wednesday, lost all of my people on Sunday during the riots. Jumped in the car with some random dudes because the riot police were making and helicopters flying around, were making everybody just leave. Disperse. And uh, well, I left all of our tents, all of our gear. I didn't care about any of that stuff. And uh, we, uh, I jumped in the car with two random people and rode all the way to, uh, uh, I think, a truck stop in Pennsylvania because there was no cell service until I could get somebody on the phone. Like we all con you know, met there and then I got in the car I was supposed to be in and oh, I went home. It was, it was wild. <laughs> um, I think one of the most memorable shows, man, for me. Was U2's uh, um, Elevation Tour. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'd seen a bunch of shows. I'd always wanted to see them. I'm a huge fan of U2. And uh, I was actually working the day portion of the show. It was at the old Charlotte Coliseum. I was working the day portion of the show. and uh, But I had a deal with, with my boss. Like, listen, when it comes to showtime, I've always, always, always wanted to see this band. 
um, can I turn in the radio and just be a fan for the night? And then when the show's over, I'll come back and help do the, the, the loadout piece. Absolutely no problem. So I remember it wasn't really discussed throughout the day how they started the show. They walk onto the stage with the house lights on and they start playing Elevation. And it's a just huge, like dramatic intro thing. It was super cool. And I'm thinking something's going wrong because the house lights have come down. So I'm reaching over to security. I'm trying to grab one. I was like, hey, give me your radio. Give me your radio. So I'm trying to get production on the radio. And I'm trying to get my guy around. I was like, the house lights are on. And he's like, hey, don't worry about it. It's supposed to be. I was like, okay. Head back to radio. I was like, I don't know what's going on here. And of course, it's planned out. There's a break in the song and the beginning of it. And the house lights come down and the stage lights come up and the show continues on. And there's actually a great live video of it from Boston. They did two days in Boston and uh, turned it into one of their live shows. Uh, and that was one show that I've, I've never teared up at a show. That was just one that I was like, this is it was incredibly emotional. It was so cool. Yeah. It was so cool. Cool to hear. Yeah. Brian, and thanks for giving me your time. I yeah, appreciate man. it. Thank you. All right. A big thank you to Brandon Hinson. Brandon got on my radar through podcast episode 46 guest drummer Jason Sutter who played with Smash Mouth while Brandon was their tour manager. So I'm glad we got a chance to get him on the show. I've been wanting to get a tour manager, and Brandon was all that and more. And now for some shameless self-promoting. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we would appreciate it if you are a listener of the show to go and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps a great deal, so please do that if you have a few spare moments. We'll be back next week with an all-new podcast featuring the basis for a well-known band that has had over 40 different members to date. So please come back next Tuesday for that. All right. Episode 54 is down and out. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.